0: back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Hawaii Supreme Court Justice Sabrina McKenna was honored recently with the 2023 Margaret Brent Women Lawyers of Achievement Award. It recognizes attorneys who have paved the way for other women in the legal profession. She is the fourth from Hawaii to receive the award. The others were the late Congresswoman Patsy Tokimoto-Mink, Attorney Ellen Godby-Carson, and U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono. Justice McKenna was born in Japan and earned her law degree from the University of Hawaii Law School, where she also played on the Rainbow Wahine basketball team. She was first appointed as judge 30 years ago joining the hawaii supreme court in 2011. the conversations russell SubiONO recently got a chance to talk to justice mckenna about her career
1: how does it feel to be mentioned alongside those women
2: it is a tremendous honor and i feel completely humbled and it's unbelievable you know i i'm not sure i'm worthy i Do not consider myself worthy to be named along with these people, but I'm very humbled to have received the award.
1: I've read that Congresswoman Patsy Mink is one of your heroes. What about her do you admire?
2: So much about her. She became an inspiration to me initially because I was an early beneficiary of Title IX, I didn't understand when I tried out for the UH Wahina basketball team that there was any possibility of receiving a scholarship if I made the team. That was not why I tried out. I just wanted to play. And when I made the team and Coach Patsy Dunn gave me a scholarship, I asked, you know, what, what is this about? I, I started learning about what it was about. And, of course, I met Dr. Donna's Thompson the first women's athletics director and learned of her friendship with the congresswoman, Patsy Takemoto mink And I learned of all the struggles that they were going through and continuing to go through in terms of getting athletics as well as women in general in education be treated more equally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in any event, because I received the scholarship, I learned about Title IX and I started learning about, Congresswoman Patsy Mink and I just came to really admire her tenacity, her intelligence, her courage, stand up for what is right against strong odds and to be pushed down and pushed aside, but just to keep going to stand up for what she thought was right. And I just thought, you know, what a woman, what a human being, what a person to be able to consider. An
1: idol. You've been described by the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association as a trailblazer, a staunch advocate for diversity and inclusion in the legal profession, and a true role model, mentor, and heroine to women, especially those in the LGBTQ and underrepresented communities. When you look at your career, do you feel like you've kind of carried on? some of those same traits that you admire in Congresswoman Mink?
2: I don't think that I can, I don't see myself in that way. Mm -hmm. Although, so it's kind of interesting to me that I'm being recognized in this way. I think I'm only doing what others have done for me. Mm -hmm. I was mentored and encouraged by various people, men and women. Mm And I feel like it is all of our obligations to, to help others if we are able to do so. People did that for me, and I think it's my turn to do that for them.
1: I know that you've been on the Supreme Court, uh, on Hawaii Supreme Court since 2011. When you first started out your career in law, was it always your goal to become a judge or on the Hawaii Supreme Court?
2: Definitely not. I don't think I ever envisioned really getting to this position until much later on in life. When I was a first-year law student, there were two people that inspired me. First was one of my adjunct professors, who in the spring semester in my appellate advocacy class was appointed to become a circuit court judge. And his name is Simeon Akoba. And after he became a circuit court judge, when he was appointed, I remember thinking, wow, lawyers become judges. I didn't even know that lawyers became judges. Being from Japan, their system is different. Judges are trainees, judicial trainees from right out of the Judicial Research and Training Institute. So I didn't really know that lawyers became judges. And when my adjunct professor, lawyer, professor became a judge, I remember thinking, wow, lawyers become judges. Maybe that's something I can aspire to someday. And it was my extreme honor that when I joined this court in 2011, I was able to join Justice Simeon Akova on this court. And in that same class, my final mock argument was before a lawyer, Bill Milks, and then his wife came in to observe. And his wife is the retired Judge Marie Milks. And she was the first Asian American woman judge in Hawaii. And she came in and after my argument, she had some nice words to say for me. And I just remember just being so thrilled and just so honored that the first Asian American woman judge, you know, had nice things to say about my mock argument. And she also became a mentor later on.
1: When I think about the kind of underlying skills of becoming an attorney and, and becoming a judge, I feel like a lot of people feel like if someone is a prolific reader or a prolific talker, They might end up being well-suited for the legal profession. What do you feel makes for an excellent judge? What are some of the traits that you feel make for an excellent judge?
2: I think first and foremost is a real commitment to justice. And in order to try to achieve justice, the willingness to do the groundwork, the willingness to work hard, to research the law to go beyond what might be written, to be willing to go do independent research into the law. And I also think life experience is helpful to be able to have compassion toward other people and their circumstances in life. And of course, it does require some ability to read and write. Mm -hmm. And I was a prolific reader when I was young. I read all the time. And to be a litigator, oral communication is also important, but not that many attorneys are actually litigators. So one can become an excellent attorney, even if one is not that proficient in oral communication. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it's Emotional intelligence, also the ability to do the book learning, Mm -hmm. and to have compassion and understanding about human life and experiences, and to have this sense of wanting to do the right thing and wanting for the world to be just.
1: And when you look over your career, do you feel that your profession has changed or evolved to be more inclusive of women and underrepresented communities? or do you still think that there's more work to do?
2: It's clearly become much more inclusive, Mm -hmm. but there is still more work to do. Remember that in 1972, when Title IX passed, only 7% of United States law graduates were women, and much less than that percentage were women lawyers. And in 1972, I believe there was only one woman judge in Hawaii, Judge Betty Mm Patusek who we consider the mother of our family court. But it took a while for the number of judges to increase. And we're very proud that the Hawaii state judiciary has the most diverse judiciary in the entire country as compared to other states in terms of gender as well as ethnic representation. I don't like the word race because there really is no such thing as race. But we still have a lot of work to do. There are many other states that do not have the appropriate representation in their judiciaries. The federal judiciary does not represent the country. And the rule of law requires that judges represent the communities they serve. So most jurisdictions are not in compliance with one of the principles of the rule of law, which is to have a diverse judiciary that represents the community they serve. But fortunately, in Hawaii, we do.
1: As societies continue, as our society continues to evolve, what do you see as the most important issue that Hawaii's legal community will need to pay attention to to be the most ready to address?
2: I believe the most important issue facing any judiciary at this point in time is the existential concern of climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think judiciaries need to be prepared to address these issues pursuant to their own constitutions and laws that might apply.
1: I read that you were born in Japan, that you attended UH Manoa, where you also played basketball, as you had mentioned before. I know you were one of the first recipients of Title IX. I know that the Hawaii Senate unanimously approved your nomination to the Hawaii Supreme Court in 2011. Of all of your life and professional accomplishments, what are one or two that you're the most proud of? My children, without doubt. My children are my
2: joy and pride. Of course, you know, professionally, uh, having been able to serve and to be honored with this position is just amazing. It's not something that I ever envisioned as a young person. So I'm humbled every day as I walk into this building.
1: Thank you so much, Justice McKenna. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much. It's truly an
1: honor. That was
0: Hawaii Supreme Court Justice Sabrina McKenna talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO. Justice McKenna was recently awarded the 2023 Margaret Brent Women's Lawyer of Achievement Award, which recognizes attorneys who have paved the way for other women in the legal profession.
2: When Tiffany Ashley Bell read that people were living without running water in Detroit because they couldn't afford to pay their water bills, she was horrified. But then she wondered.
3: What if we got the account numbers of people that needed help and then made payments for them?
2: Ideas about taking matters into your own hands. DIY. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
4: Beginning Saturday afternoon at 3 following the Moth support for hpr comes from mid-pacific committed to sparking creativity and unlocking student potential with deeper learning accepting applications for the 2023-2024 school year midpack.edu.
0: reality, check today is quite intriguing. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Patty Epler joins us this morning for a most unusual piece setting the stage for more stories to come. It's quite rare for a news organization to say, to come out and say, you know, we
3: know more than we can tell you right now. Isn't that the case, Patty? That is the case, and um, this involved a document that was filed in a federal case uh, involving Former Representative Ty Cullen, who people will know is was convicted of um, taking some bribes and taking tens of thousands of dollars in cash and poker chips um, in exchange for influencing legislation from a local businessman, a guy named Milton Choi. The federal prosecutors had wanted to uh, sort of cut him some slack during his sentencing because he had cooperated with them. So they filed a document that justified the leniency. Um, The document was redacted because it contained some detail of what Ty Cullen had done to help them. Uh, But unfortunately, when they filed the document in court, they did not. Do it properly, and um, reporters, as you know, Catherine, because I'm sure you've been to these workshops, are taught that just take a redacted document, pop it into a Word file, and if it wasn't done correctly, the redactions will disappear, and that is in fact what happened in this case, and so, uh, so Civil Beat was able to. Um, to get that document, um, credit goes to Christina Jedra, who are one of our investigative writers, who um, goes to all these journalism trainings and knows exactly how to do that. And she's the one who downloaded the document and got it. But then it put us in the bind of trying to decide, you know, should we just publish this whole thing? And, and when we called the U.S. Attorney's Office for comment, they were. Very upset that their um, details would be released publicly. Um, so it just gave us an opportunity to kind of really think through um, what's our responsibility here. And, and that's why we came down on the side of after um, spending some time thinking it through and talking with the prosecutors, um, what was sort of the more responsible course of action for us.
0: Right, because you're in a situation where what you release could jeopardize the investigations. I mean, we've heard, uh, you know, on the street that, yeah, besides uh, J. Kalani English and Ty Cullen, that there could be others. Uh, You know, other shoes will drop. Just a matter of waiting till it's soup, until they can get the evidence before a grand jury to seek a dime.
3: We're often in the position of having to Judge whether, in this case, the federal prosecutors are like just telling us that because they didn't want the info out there. Would it really jeopardize their case? Was it just that they would be embarrassed if that it came out that they kind of screwed up <laughs> filing a court document in an important case? So it's hard to say. But we we were convinced by the conversation with them that they did have a legitimate concern over how it would affect their case. From our perspective, I think it's really important that people know that it's not just Ty Cullen and Kalani English and Milton Choi, but that there are other elected officials out there that seem willing to take money in order to um, you know, influence legislation selling their positions for cash and that there are other you know, we'll just say bad guys that are willing to actually do that, give them money in order to sway legislation or public policy. So I do think it's important, especially with all the corruption attention now and the we've been doing a big sunshine project, that people do know that that is still the case and that Milton Choi and, and Kalani English and Ty Cullen was not the end of it. So that seems important to get out there, even if we can't really go into some of the details.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, you've you've just now, uh, you know, you've got us on the edge of our seats, you know, waiting to see what else will happen as this uh, as the investigations proceed. But, yeah, a most interesting story, as you mentioned, in this time when we are looking for transparency, you know, and we're here and you're doing stories about, you know, secret Lawsuits, you know, things that are being sealed in the courts that maybe the public has a right to know about.
3: Exactly, and so we, you know, we're trying our best to keep the public as informed as possible. But I do feel like we're kind of all on this island together. You know, we we do have a little bit more of a responsibility to, um, you know, if we do think, like in this case, the prosecutors have a legit reason to think that their whole investigation will be harmed by something we publish that we really think that through and not just rush to to publish. I mean, we, we did have a story ready to go two nights ago and held off. So this is where we landed today to just try to explain to people what that there is a bigger concern <laughs> that the public should be concerned about what's going on in our legislature. We just really can't say too much more about it right now.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much, Patty Epler. Thank you. I really appreciate being on. Head to civilbeat.org.
4: New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists,
5: and creative artists. Hello, I'm Matthew Fox, author of A Way to God. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about Thomas Merton's creation spirituality journey.
4: Beginning Sunday morning at 11. 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company.
0: Portuguese arrived in Hawaii on a German ship called the Priscilla in the late 1800s, according to the Library of Congress. They were the first wave of workers to be on the Hawaii sugar plantations. Today, we learn about a book detailing Hawaii's ties to Portugal. Kailua resident Danny Abreu recalls how he first connected with author and filmmaker Nelson Ponta Garza. The two worked on the book, Portuguese in Hawaii, the History of Generations.
6: I first met Nelson on a social media post that uh, there was this film producer coming to the Hawaiian Islands and going to the Big Island in Kona, and he was going to do a story on the, the Portuguese in Hawaii on, you know, the, the different areas of work and the different areas of business and politics and and so on. So I reached out to him on that post after discovering that you know he's a producer he's interviewed many governors and mayors he interviewed anthony bourdain at one point in time he's interviewed several dignitaries across the u.s and probably around the world and so i says oh wow, he's the real McCoy, and uh, I would love to host him if he would ever come to Honolulu and inform him that my mom has been a genealogist of 50-plus years and that we would absolutely love to meet up with him. Anyway, Nelson did his thing on the Big Island and did some wonderful stories and captured the different Portuguese that worked there and lived there. And then two years later, early in the morning, one morning as I was at my computer, my phone had a couple of texts. And I looked at it and I said, Nelson Ponta Garza from South George Azores is coming to Honolulu. We met, we're just like family, and we had the same dream to preserve and protect and honor our ancestors that traveled across many oceans and many seas and sacrificed and left their homeland understanding never to return. And many never caught the ship to Hawaii and many never did return and some moved on to the mainland. So that's how I met Nelson and that's uh, our, our humble beginnings.
0: And Nelson, jump in here. So you must meet, you know, lots of people like Danny Were just passionate about where they came from and the stories behind why they left Portugal.
7: Yes, I did. But uh, Hawaii was very special. I, I did this on the, on the project. I've been working for many years for Portuguese national TV uh, with news and entertainment content as a host and as a producer. I created a brand called Portuguese Inn that would, would go uh, try to preserve the history and Give visibility to the Portuguese in the main areas across especially America. Uh, Me being born in America but raised in Portugal. I did uh, Portuguese in California and New England and then about five years ago I did a documentary called Portuguese in Hawaii. We did showings in the big island and then from there it developed into having something more physical that people could have in their hands and uh, really stay forever in a book. So we printed the Uh, this book. It it came here all the way from Portugal. I just got here to to Hawaii, and I'm really looking forward to the book releases and documentary showings that we're doing in Four Islands. We're starting here in Oahu with a book and documentary showing. We hope to see everybody there, and then we're going to continue to Kauai Maui and the Big Island.
0: Well, what makes Hawaii different maybe from the other places that you've studied?
7: I felt a connection, very strong connection when I first got to, to the Big Islands here. And the reason is, especially the trip, I think, uh, once I did this documentary, it was very, very appreciated and Portugal had a lot of media attention because Hawaii is very far from Portugal and somehow disconnected. The Portuguese are very invisible in a way. Here they adapted, they married with different ethnic groups and it's kind of disappearing, the, the Portuguese heritage, but it, it is a very strong heritage here, and I believe it's, it's very different because they came to not go back, so, and they came with their families. If you look at the migration in California, New England, and other areas, especially Brazil, France, where the Portuguese went, they keep going back and forward, and some of them just came, made, made some money, then went back to their original country. And here to Hawaii, you're counting already five, six, seven generations that came, adapted and never went back. So, uh, But you can still feel some of that presence, whether if it's from the malasadas or it's from the from the different things that you have here that uh, everybody knows. The Portuguese really had a big impact all the way back to the Priscilla days when, when they got here back in 1878. They were one of the first ethnic groups here, and I think they adapted really well and have a huge contribution and we wanted to document that in a book and in a a documentary with um, people of Portuguese descent in different areas, from comedy to business to organizations in different areas. And I just made so many friends here. I'm really happy to be back here for the fourth, fifth time. Um, It's very similar to Azores and Madeira and uh, the way it looks, the way the people are so warm uh, hosting me every time I come here and Danny... Uh, was uh, as a producer of this book, was able, able to make this dream happen of, of having this documentary also in a book that we're releasing here.
0: Well, Danny shared that you know his family's from Madeira, and I've known that my father's from Madeira, and well, I have ties to the Azores from my mother's side. So I look forward to the day that I can travel to Portugal and visit these places.
7: Yes, we would love to, to have you there. And uh, I think more and more Hawaiians have been going back, and uh, Danny was one of them, and others have been going back to Madeira and Azores, and that is a very common Combination. We have the Azores Islands, there's nine islands, very similar to to Hawaii, even on the distribution of the islands. Then you have Madeira, that is just one big island. And uh, when I interviewed more than 50 people throughout the islands, one of the combinations that was very common is they would tell me, oh, Mama from Madeira, Papa from Azores, or the other way around. They were not sure, but it, it always came across like that combination. And the main reason was because, you know, there was a lot of poverty and a lot of uh, hardship back then. But they were very good in the the whaling industry and also in the sugarcane. And and Hawaii needed people to work on that area. And all the way back to King Kalakaua, there was a very good understanding with the Portuguese people because they, they would bring their families and they would stay as other ethnic groups would come kind of for the adventure or just to check it out. The Portuguese came with their families and just stayed. And it was good for the, for the sugarcane plantations because they would be solid workers that would come and stay, become lunas, and then contribute to the development of Hawaii.
0: And Danny, what was it like when you first went back to Portugal, you know, to see where your family was from?
6: Yeah, I think the most impactful thing is as I was walking through the streets in downtown uh, Funchal, and I had a tear in my eye and my wife looked at me and she says, oh, what's the tears for? And I says, I says, I feel like my ancestors are here. The other significant thing is that... You know, being in Hawaii with so many diverse cultures and, and being a former McDonald's executive, I work with all kinds of races and ethnicities. And being there and seeing everybody's Portuguese, I mean, everybody looked like me. And people would look at me and they said, you're Portuguese. And I said, yes, I am. And uh, although I would be a little bit teased uh, being in Madeira, because when they hear my last name Abru, this is shame on you how come you don't speak portuguese well the language is lost in hawaii and i wasn't you know language wasn't taught you know back in the day so obviously you know i spoke i spoke japanese that's that's the, the course of language that i chose to take in high school because i was in the restaurant business and working in waikiki as well so the, the japanese obviously helped me in my profession but yeah the significance of the beauty the people there um, everybody speaks english everybody helps you um, the food of obviously is a big tie with their bolo de caco, the bolo de mel, the bacalhau, the, 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 um, the espatada. I, I mean, it's a whole different culture uh, when, when you go there. I have some very good friends that I've been in touch with, and I have some other social media websites that I stay connected to Portugal, Madeira, and the Azores Islands, so it's heartfelt. It's hard to describe. When you go there, you, you feel, that My ancestors are thanking me for returning the trip because they they sacrificed so much that, you know, one, one ship is 66 days, one ship is 82 days. Uh, uh, the Sterling Shire was 112 days to come to Hawaii, and I just can't imagine after looking at the prior documentaries where people sacrificed so much and arrived for the New Promised Land yeah. and were told... That now you speak English. The elders obviously spoke Portuguese, but uh, they didn't teach the offspring because now you're American citizen, you speak English. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, how well but, I uh, know that
6: line. It's a sense of belonging. Once you go to Madeira or Azores Islands or Portugal, it's a sense of belonging.
0: Well, I had a friend who visited there and she was surprised to learn that Malasadas, they only have it usually around Christmas time, and here we have it every day in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That tradition, I mean, anything else you can share about malasadas in portugal
7: where i come from we call it Filos, malasadas where comes from uh, an area where the most portuguese came here from São miguel and um, it is it is one of the things that the portuguese are very proud in portugal that came all the way here and it's still something that people recognize and of course the the, uh, the ukulele being uh, being an instrument brought, uh, inspired in the braguinha from Portugal, and the fact that, that they used to call them, uh, the Portuguese here, the Pukeki, is another thing that is reflected on the book, Portuguese and Hawaii, the history of generations. And I just tried to really highlight some of these things, because for about uh, almost 100 years, there hasn't been no publications with this golden generation that really, uh, we wanted to make sure that they were not forgotten that what they've done throughout these past 100 years would be documented in a film that aired in Portuguese TV. We did a, a, a tour in Portugal and Madeira in the Azores where we showed Hawaii and, and, and the Portuguese influence in Hawaii and, and then most people were very surprised because they have heard of Hawaii as this beautiful paradise that everybody wants to come because of the beach, the good weather, but most people have no idea that you have such a strong influence as as we had almost 50% of the population of Portuguese descent, for example, back in the days in the Big Island, many mayors and, and many uh, portuguese influence people that contributed to the Hawaii, and it was not a known fact in Portugal. And so we've received also big support on this initiative from the Portuguese government and uh, all the dignitaries in Portugal that really want to kind of make up for all these years of, of being a bit disconnected with Hawaii. And I think I try to make my contribution here with my presence and with my work to, to really connect these beautiful people and these beautiful islands that are so far away, but that are so, so well connected in many ways.
0: That was Danny Abreu and Nelson Ponta Garza talking about a new book about the Portuguese in Hawaii. The launch kicks off tonight at 7 with the film screening and book signing at the Mish Memorial Auditorium and tomorrow at 6 p.m. at Punch Bowl Holy Ghost Church. It then heads to Kauai, Maui, and the Big Island. Look for links on the schedule and locations on our website later today.
4: Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University.
2: Artificial intelligence is gonna transform a whole lot of how we do things, even college. Get your degree, those were good, that's good advice 10 years ago, five years ago even and we're just living in a different world now. I'm Kai Rizdal, prepping for the AI revolution, next time on Marketplace.
4: Beginning this evening at six, following All Things Considered. Support for HPR comes from Outrigger Resorts and Hotels committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com.
0: As a child in grade school in Guam, I recall learning to recite this pledge with my right hand over my heart, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It was a powerful exhibit that stirred that memory and brought it to my consciousness. But does the history of our country truly reflect that liberty and justice for all? The Smithsonian exhibit is entitled 1898, U.S. Imperial Visions and Revisions. It revolves around the Spanish-American War and the struggle for independence playing out across the islands of Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Guam, and Hawaii. HPR was there for a media preview tour last week in our nation's capital. Here's co-curator Taina Cargall, curator of painting, sculpture, Latino art and history at the National Portrait Gallery, setting the stage for US expansionism with a snapshot of what was happening in Puerto Rico.
2: Many people who look to the US as a force for democracy and modernization and an economic engine and who were hopeful. At the same time, you have as the transfer of power happens. People like Eugenio Maria de Hostos in this portrait by Francisco Yen, who are coming to the U.S. and demanding that the United States be true to its principles and take into account the will of Puerto Ricans.
0: Also happening the lead up to a bloody fight for independence in the Philippines. Here's historian and co-curator
2: Kate Clark-Lemay. So when the United States entered the war with Spain,
1: what, how did that affect the Philippines? It, there was a ceasefire in the War of 1898 in August. And then in December, there is the Treaty of Paris. And in this treaty, the United States purchased the Philippines from Spain for $20 million. Filipinos, especially those in Luzon under the leadership of Aguinaldo, were not about to cede their independence.
0: It took a long, bloody battle against U.S. troops for the Philippines to finally gain their independence, but at a high cost of life for their people. We talked to political historian and author Tom Kaufman, who reviewed the exhibit in the Star Advertiser this week. It is a period of history he has researched and written about.
5: My generalization is that I think it's really a good thing that they did the exhibit. It's a really remarkable thing they did. They have... Flown in the face of prevailing winds, against talking critically and thoughtfully about some of the darker aspects of America's past. And it's sort of like, you know, imperialism is the sort of the geopolitical variation of systemic racism. The two were really closely interconnected in American history. So you know I think it's really all to the good that the exhibit occurred. You wrote the book
0: Nation Within the American Occupation of Hawaii and that thread is something that is woven you know throughout this exhibit. What do you think was lacking?
5: I think it's in the nature of a portrait gallery to have pieces and the challenge of you know all the captions and the positioning and so on is how you connect the pieces. And you know I have the script and the panels and the images for the whole thing, and I studied them. My reaction was that a couple of levels of critique, and I think very serious deficiencies. One is that the exhibit started really heavily with. Teddy Roosevelt, the expansion of the U.S. Navy, and the fighting with the Spanish in Cuba. And the imagery that most school children have been taught is something about Teddy Roosevelt charging up San Juan Hill on a horse, right? And the reality was... That the American foreign aim of American foreign policy, much more importantly, was to control the sea lanes of the North Pacific for both trade and military purposes. In the process, the Spanish-American War was a perfect foil for that. Spain was very weak militarily as its empire was several centuries old, crumbling. Its navy literally was crumbling, and the Spanish-American War began in Manila Harbor with a unilateral attack by uh, the American Pacific Fleet, and we sank that Spanish navy in in a matter of a morning with no loss of American life. I'm advocating for understanding that Hawaii was not only a part of this, but very central to it. And that what America most wanted was the deep draft naval harbor in the middle of the Pacific, which was named Pearl Harbor. And that was one. The second, and, you know, I really I really should interview you, Catherine, but um, there were a lot of provocative elements in the exhibit, and a lot of wonderful elements. I think. How well did they connect? To what extent do you think they left people with an overall understanding of the theme, which was literally you know 1898 uh, imperial you know visions and revisions? How well do you think they connected the dots?
0: I'm coming from the position that I'm from Guam and I did not realize, I did not connect the dots, and so this exhibit helped me to do that. I also learned a, a part of history that I was not aware of about Guam. I mean, I knew we were under the naval governors, you know, we were under the Spanish for 200 years, but it never quite sunk in until, you know, you see it in black and white. And, and the Guam exhibit, you know, it's thin, you know, because not a lot of things, I think, exist, you know, after 200 years under the Spanish, but what i saw was pretty stark and pretty black and white you know like i didn't realize that it was 50 years that we were under military control and we had so many yeah. naval governors and some were good and some were not so good i read a, a a portion in there where they apparently wanted all the spanish priests to leave the island and go back to spain and for an island that has been so heavily i guess blended with catholicism <laughs> I'm sure right. that was very hard for them to to take. Probably some of them beloved priests were kicked back to Spain. And, and apparently they were told, the Chamorros were told, you can't celebrate your cultural, you know, events, you know, the fiestas. <laughs> and the things are very ingrained in our culture today. So that yeah. was very surprising to me. So I did not realize that. And then I was coming at it from the perspective of, you know, being with the Hawaii contingent and, and was really focused on the Kuei petitions and how... Their appeals, you know, fell on deaf ears. But yet to learn the Guam history where we petitioned to, you know, have self-determination not once but eight times and then to find my own relative, you know, his name, Gregorio Perez, on that sheet was really kind of
5: startling. And you told me that your ancestry is partly Filipino as well. Yes. You made a connection there.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I did not realize and the bloodshed. I, and
5: I think that's to the good because people don't know, people today usually don't know that the Philippines was a colony taken over by the United States and that there was a war between the United States and Filipino insurgents, right?
0: Yes, the bloodshed. I mean, there's a, a, a rifle, you know, there in the display and it was just like, wow, I did not realize that part of their struggle for independence. So it's interesting, particularly with the build-up, the strategic buildup in the Pacific today, which is what really hit home for me. We were along the route, the, the you know, the Spanish galleons, and it was important for Spain and important for the U.S.
5: The Philippine-American War went on for 14 years, and I think the exhibit number is there were about 250,000 filipinos killed there are estimates in the philippines that that number approaches one million it was a horrendous war that has really been forgotten in american history
0: yeah the splendid little war was not splendid for the philippines it was a painful exhibit to walk through because i learned so many things and because i was born on a military base in california and, you know, I have a brother that was born in California and we can vote for the president of the U.S. I have another brother and sister that live in Guam and their vote doesn't count. So I'm torn. Yeah. I'm conflicted. You know, I'm coming from a military point of view, a military family. So, yeah, I'm still processing the exhibit in my in my heart and in my brain.
5: I think your uh, story, your firsthand story uh, says, you know, supports my generalization. the exhibit is really all to the good because it's going to cause people to stop and think. Maybe the whole thing, from my writer point of view, wasn't so perfectly integrated, but it wasn't a book, it was a portrait gallery, right?
0: I know that they had hoped to have this exhibit travel, and I personally had hoped that it could come to Hawaii and Guam and the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Cuba, but it's not going there. It's going to be available in some form online, and there is the book. But I just thought, gosh, if I just got that feeling in the short time, you know, walking through those halls and looking at the images and looking at the, at the board games, you know, naval supremacy, naval power, I just wish that more people could see it and make the connections between these different groups.
5: Maybe we could appeal to our congressional delegation to pursue that, you know, because they're a dimension of the Smithsonian and they're funded by, you know, the United States government. And... I feel very keenly that it should travel. You yeah, know, I agree with you completely. It should travel to all those destinations, but certainly should travel to Hawaii and Guam and Puerto Rico, which are still all part of the United States.
0: The part that pained me was that not only did Hawaii's Queens, you know, appeals fall on deaf ears, but so did the appeals from the other groups. The Puerto Ricans that went to Washington, D.C. to express their concerns and have a seat at the table, and they were not allowed. Yeah, that all is hard to process.
5: Puerto Rico, to this day, is an overseas territory, and uh, periodically there are debates over statehood and in stalemate. And it's now 125 years after they were taken over by the United States.
0: It's a lot to unpack Politically. But, you know, the other thing too that struck me was, you know, because I had just done my DNA and I'm a a little bit Native American, and to learn that the military officers Mm. had gotten their experience in the wars with the American Indians really hit home because I'd been doing some research on my husband's ties to the Revolutionary War and that whole struggle, breaking away from Britain. And so it just really was so ironic.
5: Well, I think that the third or fourth portrait they had up was General Nelson Miles, who was an Indian fighter. And that means essentially the war of either displacement or extermination. And they went from fighting Indians, literally, to fighting in the Philippines. Leonard Wood was in the exhibit, Dr. Leonard Wood, who was a right-hand person of Teddy Roosevelt. And he was an Indian fighter, and then he was literally in the Battle of San Juan Hill. And I remember doing basic army training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri in the cold, in the freezing cold. So it's a, a little vignette of how deeply embedded these icons are. and bring them out into, you know, a rational understanding of what they signify, I think. I think it is really important. So I think your experience really says this exhibit matters, and let's hope we can get as much interest in Hawaii and around the country as possible.
0: You know, the night of the opening of the gallery, Hailama Farden of the Order of Sons and Daughters of Hawaiian Warriors stood up. And he just said, I challenge all of you in here to learn more, you know, about these places, about the Queen and Hoy's history. And I think that was a very poignant moment, you know, and that I think that this exhibit just existing is you know, kudos to the two curators for making sure that these voices are included. I would agree. Pretty powerful. So I hope you get to see it too.
5: I'm I'm planning on it, yeah.
0: That was Tom Kaufman, political historian and author, sharing his thoughts about the Smithsonian Exhibit 1898, U.S. Imperial Visions and Revisions. It opened this past weekend in our nation's capital and runs through February of next year. Kaufman wrote a book about the period, Nation Within, the History of the American Occupation of Hawaii, available on Amazon. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we try to learn more about the fire suppression system at Red Hill. Call our talk back line. Leave us your comments. That's 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of our website. And want to listen back to something else you've heard, sign up for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard Quiz theme was written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.